to another episode of What Happens Next. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. This time, we are looking at the therapeutic potential of using psychedelics to treat mental health conditions such as depression and PTSD. What would happen if we were to legalise psychedelics and what opportunities would we miss out on if we don't? In Australia, we're just coming through the birth canal now in the space of uh, psychedelic uh, mental health treatment. Part of the reason that a psychedelic research is hard to do is because it's, it's illegal. It's an illegal drug. Our society is going to be a mess in 50 years if we keep going down the path that we're going down, especially if we are relying on medication, existing medications, the way we have been using them today. But first, let's take a historical and anthropological look and see why governments have been so reluctant when it comes to drug decriminalisation. So my name's Dan Luckman. I'm Professor of Addiction Studies at Monash University and the Director of the Monash Addiction Research Centre here. I'm also Executive Clinical Director of Turning Points, a national addiction treatment research and education centre based in Melbourne. We have a policy that, that comes and we inherited from the US, which is largely prohibitionist. Um, and really, it goes back to the time, uh, you know, essentially around Richard Nixon, where, uh, you know, very strongly, you know, he, you know, said that he's going to have a war on drugs and started America's a tough on crime enemy Number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress... And since 1971, the US has spent $1 trillion on its war and drugs campaign. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad. Decriminalisation or criminalisation is a matter of, if you like, the social and legal fashions of the time. Andrea Whittaker focuses on the social and cultural context of legal and illegal drug use through anthropological and ethnographic studies. Well, as a medical anthropologist, um, I look at the way in which, you know, we have different cultures around things to do with health and illness. And within uh, medical anthropology, we talk about drugs as objects of power, okay? So if you look at it that way then, what it means is that each culture has different drugs that it uses in different ways. Um, And so cross-culturally, our drug use, you know, differs. So really, I guess what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, drug use is relative and it's a very human activity. So there's no culture on earth that doesn't use drugs. A really important concept in um, anthropology of drug use is the idea of setting and set. And so setting... Um, is the sort of environment in which drug use takes place. And set is the um, sort of mindset, if you like, uh, which you approach that drug use. But we can learn from other cultures in terms of their moderation of drug use through the use of ritual and through the use of guides. What does drug decriminalisation actually mean? Well, it actually means that you're just changing the social legitimacy of a drug. Not so long ago, um, cocaine was used as a pick-me-up for bored housewives wow. um, or for getting sleepy children out of bed. Um, oh so, and the same with things like morphine as well. And, of course, Coca-Cola used to have 
um, coca in it, which is, you know, uh, the, the base from which cocaine comes from. So our attitudes towards those drugs have changed enormously over time. Uh, likewise, there's things which are now considered fine, uh, which in the past were considered quite scandalous as drugs. So we've we've changed over time, and so it really is just a matter of the social legitimacy of those drugs. Some of those factors, I think, are generational. Uh, views on drugs are shifting. Paul Lignitsky is a joint research fellow within the Turner Institute and the Department of Psychiatry at Monash University and head of the Clinical Psychedelic Research Lab. Psychedelic medicine was the next big thing in psychiatry through the 50s and 60s. Um, I think there are probably a number of factors that um, have led to the situation we see now, which is you know a very important moment in the history of psychedelic psychiatry. The conversation's becoming more mature and nuanced. The old uh, you know Nixonian and Reagan story of you know all drugs being bad except for alcohol uh, is just changing now. Uh, we've got research now that really shows that, uh, you know, among among the substances people consume, alcohol is the most damaging of them all. Um, also, a number of brave souls uh, commenced research in the space or recommenced research in the space. There was a little island of research in in the uh, early '90s, and then uh, the beginnings of what we think of now as the uh, psychedelic renaissance kicked off around uh, 2000, very slowly at first, and it's been growing exponentially over the last few years. And the weight of evidence, uh, the the compelling nature of the results, I think is something that just can't be ignored. So um, so I think there are a number of, you know, scientific, clinical and sociopolitical factors that uh, uh, have contributed to, to the situation we're in now where psychedelics are really... Uh, the next big thing in psychiatry again. For the people that don't know, what's an MDMA and what's a psilocybin? Sure. So MDMA is uh, what is uh, considered uh, ecstasy or molly on the streets. And uh, unfortunately, you you know, uh, given um, the illegal drug markets, often what is thought to be MDMA does not contain much MDMA. So uh, pure MDMA uh, is quite different uh, in a number of respects than what a lot of people think of as ecstasy. Uh, it's, it's not ecstasy per se, uh, but it's, a, um, it's what's referred to as an empathogen. It's a drug that uh, includes both uh, stimulant properties, so it stimulates people. Uh, it's got amphetamine qualities in it, uh, and it, uh, it uh, also makes people feel more empathic and connected and open and warm. Uh, a little bit like oxytocin might. Mm. Um, so MDMA combined with a form of specialized psychotherapy has been used in the treatment of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and that research program in terms of uh, the psychedelic uh, field is the furthest along uh, than any other. So there's an organization in the US called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Disciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And um they have been leading the charge in that space and just recently published um, the first of two what are called phase three studies, which are the final kinds of studies you need to do before you can register a new medicine. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So we synthesized and pure psilocybin in the trials and uh, 
that is what's referred to as a classical psychedelic. So different than MDMA, which is often considered a psychedelic in, in the broad use of the term, but it's not a, a classical psychedelic. It's got some psychedelic qualities and some other kinds of qualities. But psilocybin is very much a classical psychedelic, uh, a bit like its uh, cousin LSD, which was the, you know, the most prominent psychedelic in the first wave in the 50s and 60s. Um, and so psilocybin uh, ha has very different effects uh, than MDMA, some overlapping effects too. Uh, it produces um, some substantial alterations to uh, uh, conscious awareness, everything from perception to emotion to the way you think and what you do can be uh, dramatically altered. Importantly, it produces you know, an, a fundamental altered state of consciousness, which is, which is a, a fascinating and remarkable phenomenon. Um, and in terms of clinical efficacy, it's, um, it has a number of effects that, that are thought to be very useful uh, in the treatment of disorders of um, rigidity or perseveration, like uh, addictions and depression and other disorders. Um, and these include pretty dramatic alterations in perspectives on your life or your relationships or uh, yourself. These perspectives, importantly, are deeply felt. Um, they're not, you know, abstracted or just cognitive. They're really uh, embodied and emotional and really felt. And uh, and for various interesting reasons, uh, those new perspectives, which include, um, you know, realignment with your priorities in life, uh, seem to drive change. They they drive change in the in attitudes, in in affect, in behaviour. Um, and the changes that we see in these early trials um, go quite far out. You, the, some of the trials have followed up patients six months, a year, in some cases even a few years later. Um, and uh, a majority of participants uh, have a very different experience of life and uh, are, are doing things very differently after just a short treatment program, just a few do one to three dosing sessions and, and uh, some psychotherapy around it. Um, so there's some very interesting questions around how this works, of course, given, you know, the half-life of these drugs is, you know, in the order of hours. What happens if we, as a species, don't try to investigate the world of psychedelic um, psychotherapy, if we just continue down the same path that we are with the medicine and treatment that we're using? Certainly, it would be a massive missed opportunity to not engage with and support and, and further develop uh, both psychedelic-assisted therapies and the fundamental sciences uh, on psychedelics. Given the limited funding to date, you know, recently uh, funding has, has kicked into the field dramatically over the last 18 months, but prior to that there was very limited funding and the trials were small and slow. And, uh, and so I can say we're still at an early phase of, the, of research in this field. Um, but the results to date have been nothing short of remarkable. My name is Arthur Christopoulos. I'm the Dean of Monash's Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. I'm a pharmacist, molecular pharmacologist, uh, with a passion for drug discovery, especially in neuropsychiatric space. Arthur, welcome. Imagine 
we continue along the same path we are in Australia mm-hmm. with our approach to the medications we use for mental illness. Mm-hmm. Say nothing changes. What does our society look like in 50 years? Our society is going to be a mess in 50 years if we keep going down the path that we're going down, especially if we are relying on medication, existing medications the way we have been using them to date. Uh, there, are, there are different paths we can go down in terms of why. Uh, one situation is, one scenario I should say is um, the science itself behind these medicines is more than 50 years old. Most of them were discovered by accident. And if you look at the latest uh, Productivity Commission findings, for example, it was pretty damning in what it said around the medicines. They're overused, they're overprescribed. The only thing you're essentially guaranteed are adverse effects. Mm. It's hard to come off. And their effectiveness is 30 to 40% irrespective of the kind of um, neuropsychiatric disorder you're trying to treat. So why are we not innovating when it comes to mental health is such an issue in our society. I think 4 million Australians suffer from some sort of mental illness. Out of a population of 26 million, that's a significant percentage. Why why is this not a matter of urgency? Basically because uh, Big Pharma have burnt themselves a lot uh, over the last, say, 10 years, and the pendulum has pretty much swung away from neuropsychiatry. There have been a lot of clinical trials that failed, and so they pretty much walked away. Um, so let me interrupt yeah, you there. Yeah, no. When you say they've done a lot of clinical trials that have failed, as in they've tried new things that hasn't worked and they've decided we, there's nothing to be done here. There's, there's, no, there's, there's not enough return on their investment to be done because of the approach they've been using it. Um, I think the, the issue is, as I said, most of the drugs that we have to date were discovered from the 50s through to the, you know, Prozac was discovered in 1972. Mm. People forget that. It made it into the market in the mid to late 80s and blew up in the 90s. And of course, everyone's been calling it a wonder drug. Most of the drugs that have come since have been variants of the Prozac approach, SSRIs, what they call selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. But the science is, is, is quite old. And so... And this goes all the way back to the beginning of neuropsychiatric drug discovery. Most of these medicines were discovered for something else, mm. right? Then we found that they had psychiatric effects and for a number of people, they helped. But we're essentially, this is just my personal take on it, the way I look at it is we essentially reverse engineered what the medicine does by accident, we discovered by accident to say that this therefore is underlying what causes the disease. And I think that mismatch is what really has not driven the type of innovation we need to be driving. And so people have been looking under the same spotlight for so long. Of course, nothing has come that's been any better. And they've pretty much walked away for now until someone comes up with something different. So what do you want to see happen? I want to see us take some obvious examples of where there are other psychoactive substances where there's plenty of evidence that they're doing something already and then work out how they're working and also progress them forward into trials. So, like what? What's like, working? Well, we have some uh, – there's been a renaissance, I would say, since the mid-2000s in the uh, space of the psychedelics. Okay. I can hear alarm bells going off yeah, around right. the country that's with right. you saying yeah. that. Why do you want everyone to be high? I don't. Uh, <laughs> I don't. So, first of all, I'm not talking about cannabis, but I know what you're, you're referring to. No, I think the, 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 there's a, if I take a step back and say get rid of the baggage in the language – and think about the kind type of what I refer to neuromedicine you'd like going forward. What you want is not to be medicated, mm-hmm. right? What you want is a medicine that, in contrast to all pretty much all existing psychiatric medicines, you want something that actually fast onset, 
the effect comes on quickly. Yes. Right. Which I'm guessing current medications do are not. not. That's yep. right. Okay. Um, especially if you look at antidepressants, you've got to be taken for weeks before you start to see any sort of effect kicking in. You want something that is fast onset. Yep. You want something that you only take for a little bit. Right. And then you want to facilitate non-medicinal psychotherapy to help the patient mm-hmm. in remission and go on, continue. And the commonality of existing agents that we have seen that have that effect are things like classic psychedelics, which are hallucinogenic drugs like mm. psilocybin and the LSDs, MDMA, which is actually, I consider not a psychedelic drug. It's actually an amphetamine derivative, yeah. but it has a similar uh, effect. And even things like ketamine, which is an anesthetic, all right? What you find in all of these instances is they are fast onset. They change your consciousness to the state where you are then receptive to processing your thoughts and having psych- post-medicinal psychotherapy. And yes. because you would only ever use them in a, under, in a clinical setting like that, you would only have a couple of sessions, mm-hmm. especially with things like the psychedelic drugs and the MDMAs. And that's kind of at the moment the impetus towards trying to see if medicinal therapy to assist non-medicinal psychotherapy is the new type of treatment modality we should be moving towards for treating mental illness, especially treatment-resistant mental illnesses. So when you said that we'd only need to take it for a short period of time, Mm -hmm. I wondered if it meant because it was in some way curing something or reconfiguring the brain, Mm -hmm, but it mm -hmm. actually sounds like what you're saying is it just opens a space in the mind where for people who may be really struggling with significant depression, for example, when you're in that place, yep. you cannot consider that there would be any benefit in therapy, that nothing will change, That's that nothing right. will help. That's so right. it simply opens a curtain in the mind That's right. to allow something else to work. Absolutely. I, um, as we study this further, we may learn more about when and where the place for these sorts of medicines would be going forward more than once, twice, three times. But the, the, the current thinking and the, and the innovation, the approach is exactly that. Uh, if you look at, if you take a step back, if you look at something like an SSRI, right, which people take for depression and they, they, they're on it for a long time. And in fact, I know a lot of people on SSRIs, I know very few that have been able to come off them, for instance. Yeah. Now that works in a different part of the brain. It works on a similar transmitter system. It's a chemical called serotonin, which is really important. But it works in another a part of the brain where it's almost like uh, there's a psychopharmacologist, a very famous one in this field called David Nutt, and he's got a really good analogy. With an SSRI, it's like putting a plaster cast around the part of the brain called the limbic system if that's, that, that helps whatever. So basically, you put the plaster cast around this part of the brain and you try and wait for the stress to heal. Mm. Psychedelics work in a different part of the brain our cortex, all right, and, yes. and, and there they actually open up exactly what you said, those thought processes. They almost fracture the cortex and re-allow new connections to be made in your thought processes, which then allow you to process the memories, the trauma and such. It's a totally different part of the brain and a totally different mechanism. And there is emerging evidence that these things may also engender this thing called neuroplasticity, which mm. it may allow new connections to be formed. So where has this been done successfully elsewhere that's made you think this could be an option? I think the, the, for, for, there are a number of groups around the world doing this. For me, one of the, one of the big breakthroughs was uh, work from Johns Hopkins, a guy called Roland Griffiths, who's very well known in this space. He was one of the first people to really, it was around, around the mid-2000s, 
uh, use psilocybin in pa- uh, first in people that were, were healthy people, but also later there's been a lot of work that was done in end of end of life anxiety situations where just one uh, one session with these sorts of things changed people's per- per- perspective on 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 their anxiety. Um, I also have a very good friend called Dave Nichols. Now Dave is probably the world's best psychedelic chemist. He's been doing this since the 1960s uh, and he's been a great uh, friend and mentor. And he also was the first person to switch me on, so to, so to speak, to the fact that these new trials had begun where, with, you know, with, with end-of-life patients. So that, that, was a, that study, um, Roland's work was a real turning point. Um, and since then, there have been a number of other groups like uh, Rick Doblin uh, formed MAPS, uh, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic um, Sciences, I think. And, and a lot of people really, and they're funding a lot of work. So I think that the mid-2000s was the turning point. Uh, but a lot of that is still being funded essentially by philanthropists that want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think the, the not the big pharmaceutical no no companies. I think big big pharma are just sitting here waiting this out. They're right. going to they're waiting to see where this is how this is going to pan out because um, the analogy that a lot of people make and I think it's probably the wrong analogy is this is like like medicinal cannabis. We've seen what's happened with medicinal cannabis and it's been a huge boom and a huge industry, but but psychedelic drug research is gonna be a different type of treatment model, but a lot of companies, smaller companies are already springing up looking to whether to fund this or to to, to see where this goes, but it's a different treatment paradigm and and pharma know this. They know there's something to this, but they're just gonna wait to see how it pans out. And one of the reasons, I think one of the big reasons is get generating the type of clinical trial data that will get these things registered Mm. it's that's 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 the next challenge and that's going to be tricky but why would big pharma not want to do this claim the patents you know well there are two reasons one is you're not going to be able to patent something like a psilocybin or an mda that's all but if you find new chemical matter of course you can you can do that the second one is i believe they would need to patent or regulate or register not just the drug but the associated therapy psychotherapy that goes with the medicine uh-huh. and that's a different model to how most other drugs on the market you patent the drug as the drug itself yeah this and is the end point this is the end point yeah and i think i believe part of the regular regulate the regulation issue is one doing the trials to the rigor uh, that's going to get them registered but it's going to have to include the therapy associated with that and then there's the economic argument people are going to say well is the what's the cost benefit you know it it, it, it when you when you combine the drug with the therapy you know two or three sessions is it worth our while you know um it might cost x amount of dollars will it be reimbursed will it get you know you know medicare and all of that those those, those things are to be sorted out so there's a regulatory and economic argument i think the economic one's going to going to pan out because if you the cost to society of the, the burden of mental illness is going to far outweigh that. Yes. What would you say to the people out there that are hearing what you're saying and all they can think is this is a disaster? These these drugs are prohibited for a reason. Mm-hmm. This is not a good idea. Prohibited for a reason is an interesting and loaded term because I think the reason that these substances are prohibited has got nothing to do really with what their pharmacology suggests, all right? Um, Psychedelics in particular, there is almost no evidence whatsoever that they can be addictive in any way. Mm. 
Mm. They do not cause uh, uh, withdrawal effects. They do not cause self-seeking, reinforcing behaviour. Ne- that's been very, very well established. What negative right. side effects do psychedelics have then? Well, obviously, in an uncontrolled environment, if you've if you've got a consciousness alteration, you can ha- you can have an accident. You can you can hurt yourself, right? right? Secondly, there have there are concerns that in predisposed individuals, they may induce a psychotic-like state. That's been uh, well looked at, but to, interestingly, not conclusively proven. But what we're talking about, going to the first part of your question, is the way these things won't be a disaster because the way they would be used is only under clinical supervision only once twice three times then no drug in in between mm-hmm. um i'll give you an analogy is uh fentanyl right fentanyl is heroin but 10 times more potent mm-hmm. it is literally 10 times more potent heroin um you know what the problems that fentanyl causes and that's way more dangerous out there but the way we use it in this country uh, you, you only ever get, and I know, because I, a couple of years ago I had, uh, I lost a kidney and I had an operation and they gave me fentanyl and it was great, but they only gave it to me in the operating theater. Mm. Now, as soon as you get out of the operating theater, you don't get fentanyl anymore, right? So if you have it in a clinically controlled environment, there is, there's no harm there. What would you do to protect against that risk? As you said, that in some people, LSD may cause a psychi- psychotic yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. How would you mitigate against that? All, all patients going into any trial, and even if the trials are successful, it becomes a therapy, they're pre-screened as you do with, with anything else. If there is actually any uh, incidence of a personality disorder or a predisposition towards psychosis, you will not be allowed to take this substance. Similarly, the most common side effects of these both the, the psychedelic drugs and the MDMAs, for instance, are alterations in your, your blood pressure, um, your heart rate, your temperature a little bit. Um, and so people, for instance, that would have uh, difficulty with the, the, the you know, uncontrolled blood pressure would also be not taken into a cl- clinical trial. It's no different to if you've got uncontrollable hypertension, they're not going to give you Sudafed. Which, which is going to raise your blood pressure. So it's about screening, the, the, the clinicians screening the patient before they allow them into the therapy. That's key. I started uh, our chat by asking you what our future looks like if we don't change things. Imagine now that you go back to your office and you get an email from the federal government and mm-hmm. the TGA. Mm-hmm. They sent out a joint email to you and said, mm-hmm. ah, great news, we've decided that this really is an area we want to invest in. We'd like to really ramp up clinical mm-hmm. trials. Mm-hmm. What do we look like in 50 years then? Well, that would be, well, to, to get that right, it, it, given that the government are the ones that email me, the TGA, the ones that emailed me, we have the opportunity to basically set up an end-to-end uh, clinical chain center. Sorry, I'll take, a, I'll take a step back. An end-to-end consortium or center where we have discovery, development, formulation, and clinical trials in this country. Uh, it, it's going to be a game changer. I think most of the work to date has been largely funded by philanthropy around the world, largely focused on clinical trials around psilocybin and MDMA. It makes sense. You need a starting point. But imagine if you can turn this into a full neuropsychiatric drug discovery industry, but, but including the therapy models as well as the drugs. I look at them as antibiotics for the mind. Mm-hmm. You only take them for a little bit to get off other drugs. And that's, uh, that's what the future would look like to me. We would have a whole new uh, trained workforce where these people know the, 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 clinic, the psychotherapy aspects of the count and the, and the counselling. Uh, we would be looking at mental illness in a different way because you, only want, you, only, you don't want to be taking meds. But if you had to take meds, 
this is the way to go. And the rest is really value adding to all the other things that the governments have already put in place. All the, the, the things, that, as I said, about patient access, access gateways, uh, collaborative centres, more uh, trained counsellors, all of that. Um, the missing piece has been the medicinal bit. Do you think what it just a big part of what it comes down to is that MDMA and psychedelics just has bad PR? Yep. Like if it were anything else. Yep. Yep. Bottom line, yes. As I said, if you take away the baggage and if you take away the terminology and you look at these things, I mean, let's take the psychedelics. As I said, these substances um, are on their own. They're so safe. In fact, if you... I'm not aware of any deaths associated with an overdose of a psychedelic drug unless they're, 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 they're an accident. You know, someone, someone took a big dose and they jumped off a building, for instance, and I'm, just, I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, that, that, that's true. In a clinical environment, there's never been any, any issue associated with that. Uh, the psychosis link has been studied but has not been definitively proven. Um, and, in fact, uh, the, 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 the therapeutic index for psilocybin, that means, you know, how much do you have to take relative to how much works to, you know, cock it, for want of a better term, is a thousand, whereas, you know, Panadol is 10, mm. right? Uh, so, 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 so in, 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 and the second, if you look at MDMA, MDMA is an amphetamine derivative. We're already giving amphetamine derivatives for ADHD, for narcolepsy. It's not that different to Ritalin and it's not that different to Adderall and yet they're being used. So what's, what's, why aren't we looking at it in, th- in those terms? Arthur, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. In our next episode, we speak to experts working in the field about some of the early trials using psychedelics such as MDMA and psilocybin. Hope you'll join us next time on What Happens Next.